So before you start, mm-hmm. as in before you do the clap, mm-hmm. um, my editor, which yes. is my sister, right, yes. <laughs> reports that Zoom is so good at suppressing noises that yep. the clap is not actually recorded oh, okay. on the shared <laughs> track. <laughs> hilarious. Okay. And Fair. so her suggestion is to use a plosive instead of doing the clap. So okay. it would be like three, two, one, or something like that. <laughs> did you did you hear the plosive? No, I did not hear it. What this the heck? I know Zoom is uh, has got some advanced noise cancellation technology. Okay, then maybe uh, I I I'm kind of out of ideas. Like I don't know. Maybe I do clicks pass like three, two, one. Did that? Nope. Completely silent. Okay. So that's a problem because clicks mm-hmm. are valid speech sounds. Yeah. You don't say. <laughs> wait, wait. Okay. Does this go through? No. no? I didn't hear, I didn't hear okay. anything. Yeah. So that's Zoom being Zoom. Which, um, I mean, you can see why they would do it, but at the same time, what the hell? Oh, okay. Wait. Let me turn on... Let me turn on original sound for musicians. Can I turn it on in the middle of a recording? Okay, noise suppression is now disabled. So let's try the clap again. See, now your audio is softer, but okay. Interesting. Okay. Okay, three, two, one. Okay, I heard that, yep. Yep, okay, cool. Good. So I don't know if we're going to keep that front part as part of the recording. That's going up to be up to my, my sister. Fair. Um. Yeah, but anyway, have having done all that, I don't know how to start this 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 I episode have no anymore. Idea what to, yeah, I am um, also not prepared for today. <laughs> but I mean, when are we ever prepared? That's the that, whole no, that, that shtick. Is very fair. That's the whole shtick of my life. To be fair, fair. it's literally we just show up and we have a conversation. Yes. Um. Okay. So, I. You part have gone this, off the deep end with Pokemon. Okay, okay, part of this, part of this, <laughs> part of the difficulty today is that we had dinner yesterday, and so I yes. think like the tank is a uh, you know is 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 half empty, half empty or only half full. Is the tank is depleted because yes, some but, okay, of the, okay. The I crap do I do want to address shoot. your 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 obsession now with Renaissance Pokemon or your yeah with Renaissance with old Pokemon, Pokemon. Um, with old Pokemon. I okay. I don't know if I would say it's an is an obsession in the sense that you know there are nine generations of mainline Pokemon games, and I have only ever played start to finish. I've only ever played one, two, three, four, and nine. Mm. And even four is like that's pushing it because I played one game of Pokemon Platinum, right? <laughs> the Wait, other generation four. Yes. Oh, it is Gen four. Huh? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yes. The okay, first three okay. gens I've played very thoroughly. Yes. Okay. Um, even okay. Even thoroughly is 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 kind of is okay. Let me, let me be specific. Pokemon Red I have played yeah. many many times. Of Pokemon course. Yellow I've played quite a few times. Pokemon Blue is, is essentially the same as Red. I've played through it. I've played all three starters. Uh, I've played various iterations of you know building out teams. I've never speed run. Um, <laughs> Pokemon 
I've never speedrun Pokemon full stop. Fair. Right? That, that, um, that requires a level of dedication that... Yeah. It is something yeah. that I would consider, but I would have to... I would pick my battles really carefully. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, Pokemon Gen 2, right? Gold, Silver, Crystal. I've played through yes. Crystal. Uh, I've played through Silver. I have probably played through Gold, to be honest. I just don't remember. It's lost in the... To the I mean, gold sands and silver of time. function and the locks of each other. Yeah, so essentially fair. the same. Yes. But crystal was the game changer, right? Crystal, I, to me, right? Crystal is, um, I, I arguably still, still one of the best ever. Yes, I agree. I think if you are making a list of all the generations of Pokemon and you know, like generation agnostic, which one was mm. the best? I think Crystal is still like a very complete package. Well, okay, right, so. let's, let's be fair. I think it, it Crystal outstrips all the other generations if you play it sequentially. So in terms of the the jump in storytelling, the jump in gameplay, I feel, Crystal was right. the one that pushed things forward the most. Right. That's right? true. That's true. But I also feel that Crystal is very complete for another reason, which is that, um, okay, to be, the, to be the, the third game in a generation... Mm-hmm. has its benefits, right? Because you are yeah. you are kind of um you get the advantage of having a slightly more refined game than the first two games in the generation. So Gold Silver will make some mistakes and then Crystal gets to be a bit more Fix. refined. Right? Yeah. Ruby Sapphire gets to make some mistakes and then Emerald will be a bit more refined on mm-hmm. paper. But um on paper, yeah. But what I feel with two, with Gen two in particular, is that um for a new player, right? If you didn't play Gen 1, Gen 2 is the right amount of complexity. And the game mechanics that are present there are in and of themselves very complete. What I felt moving from Gen 2 to Gen 3, right, was that if you were very used to the first two generations, um, the new mechanics that were introduced are a bit more... Um, they can be a bit too much noise, mm. right? Although, of course, like, you know, abilities, double battles and so on, that that becomes really, uh, it's a staple now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, but it takes time to get used to. So that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, berries. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, berries were in Gen 2, but like Pokeblocks. Gen blocks. 2, yes. Pokeblocks, Poke blocks, right? The, yeah, I think uh, that is Gen of, 3 onwards yeah. only. Um, which only didn't last, which didn't last very long anyway as well, right? They didn't last very long. The, the mechanics stayed around. Mm, so mm. in the sense that later generations, it's not just you you didn't have poker blocks, but like later on you have like curries, poffins, and sandwiches in Gen Nine. That well, okay, that. wait, wait. So sandwiches are different from, I mean, poke blocks were there to exploit the sharing technology that the Game Boy Advance had, right? So That's it was true. there to promote, uh, yeah, networking capabilities. That's true. Or to exploit, not promote, so per se. I mean, that kind of, it's kind of like you you create a mechanic to take advantage of the hardware, but then if it's mm-hmm. good, it sticks around in some form, yeah. right, yeah. to the core gameplay. So anyway... Yeah, so I guess Pokeblocks, the, the, actually the end lock in Gen 9 is um, the Union, uh, it's not, not Union, whatever it's called. Uh, union the, um, Circle. Yeah, Union the Circle. The Union yeah. Circle, yeah. Yeah. Um, so for me, Gen 3 took a bit of getting used to, but at this point again, I've, I actually don't know if I've, 
played no, I've definitely played Ruby. I've I've played all three at least once. Okay. Uh, and I have um played through enough that like the you know, I've kind of overcome that oh my god, everything is so new kind of gap, right? Right. Um yeah, although there are still things about Gen 3 that surprise me. In the sense that, okay, let me put it this way. When I play Gen 3, right, I know where everything is for the most part. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right? I um, still kind of still get lost in the end game sometimes. I'm like, wait, where do you get? Where do you get dive? Where do you get waterfall? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But that's fine. Um, th- what I. I'm not really a fan of, right? And why I feel that Crystal is still kind of more refined is that in Gen 3, you can kind of see rough edges in the sense of... um, I complained about this yesterday, right? But when we met, but I am like, why can ground Pokemon get paralyzed Uh by static like literally Mm. the sentence Mm -hmm. makes no sense Mm -hmm. right um that's one example (laughs) right from a physical and uh (laughs) yeah from a mechanics perspective as well that's right yes right or like there's little oddball kind of things like yesterday or the day before i literally just after all my time of playing pokemon i just discovered in emerald specifically Right, um, a Pokemon cannot forget Surf at the Move Deleter's house. What? In if, Emerald? Yes, in Emerald and only Emerald. Okay, a Pokemon cannot forget Surf at the Move Deleter's house if they are the only Pokemon in your party with Surf. Uh, what? And no. I'm, it's true. Oh, that's unusual. It's true. And... Uh, I ran into this because I wanted to um, change my surf Pokemon, right? Yes. So I went to a move deleter's house. I was like, okay, please, you know, get my this water Pokemon to forget surf because I want to teach it dive. Yeah. Right? Huh. Which I'm sure is a very common Okay, wait, thing. which Pokemon was this? This was Gyarados. Uh, I was like, yeah, prefer. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, um, and the, you know, you go there, the move deleter... The, the pop-up just says, uh, hmm, Gyarados doesn't seem to want to forget Surf. I was like, what? Oh, so this was coded in as well. Yes. Right? Because this and, is, I mean, this is obviously not something that, you know, is a bug. This is a deliberate choice. It's deliberate. And it is the only such move of its kind. And it's only in Emerald. Huh. Um, so it turns out that it cannot forget Surf it is, if it is the only Pokemon in the party to have Surf. And I'm trying to figure out why that would be, but I cannot, I cannot quite fathom why. Yeah. Um, I, it, okay, so it doesn't make sense to me because the from like a you know soft locking perspective which is what you would expect right like yeah you you don't want people to accidentally like soft lock um yeah. by forgetting a move that they used to get to a place and now they can't get out mm-hmm. but it doesn't make sense because the move deleter is in lily cove 
um, which means you always have access to a Pokemon Center. And so the only way that... I mean, there there's no chance. There's no chance of it. Because you, you're kind of like, okay, you've forgotten Surf. Well, just teach it. Oh, I don't have the HM. Well, it where can it be? You can't toss yeah. it. It has to be in the PC. You mm-hmm. go to the PC, which is right there in the same city, and then you teach it to another Pokemon. Yeah. Uh, could it be that... Could it be that the Pokemon that you used to 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 get there is the only one that you have that can learn surf? Well, that also doesn't make sense. Well, okay, right. I, guess I mean, it's, clearly I, this must have come up in a decision tree mapping somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's possible. Like, maybe... No, but it also doesn't... Huh. No, it, it really doesn't make sense. Because I was thinking, like, maybe you release that Pokemon and now you are stuck. But that... And then you have no way of catching a Pokemon that knows Surf. But that's also not possible yeah. because... That's not possible because I believe in Lily Cove itself, there is a... You can get a rod. Right. I think so. Uh, right. I could be wrong about that. Uh, maybe it's not Lily I, Cove. It's been a while since I've touched that generation. But, okay. so, I... so I think here's... here's This is what I'm getting at about like familiarity with, with Gen mm-hmm. 3, right? Mm-hmm. In... Uh, Gen 2, I couldn't tell you to get, get a rod either, exactly. But Gen 1, I, I know where all the rods are. Ah, uh, yes. But, right? but that's I know, because you know, we've been you know, playing Gen just 1 for so long. more than a oh God, decade. No, wait, how many years already? No, it's two decades. Oh, Jesus And Christ. change. Okay. Yeah. And change, yeah. Yeah. Oof. And okay, I just want to point out, look, our last episode also started with Pokemon. So I don't know if this <laughs> is becoming a pattern. But, I don't, but we didn't discuss it in detail, did we? We, we did for one hour. Oh. Then the oh, shit, second okay. half was... Something else. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but okay, anyway, I mean, it's a starting point. Yeah. Um, but the 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 thing about... um, it, But it doesn't make sense because if you had a Pokemon that knew Surf and then you made it forget Surf, mm-hmm. you can always teach Surf to that same Pokemon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Unless yeah. you release that Pokemon, but then you could always release it even if it had Surf. So that can't be it. Was, was, hang on, I, no, Move Relearner and Move Deleter was, That's they after. were introduced in Gen 2, right? The Relearner, no. The oh, Relearner okay. is much later. Right, but Deleter, yeah. Mm. So yeah, it's not a new mechanic. Well, anyway, it's strange. It's Clearly this strange. must have cropped up in, in a use case somewhere, in the very edge case. Yeah, and the devs thought, well, we we have to we have to put in some restrictions to fix it. Yeah, so um, yeah. Anyways, this gens one to three, and so I, that's kind of why, like, I feel like in in many ways, Gen two is just a more coherent game. Gen yeah, three, yeah. you can kind of see teething issues, and then Gen four, I don't know, it just didn't really catch right. my attention. And maybe part of it is is like a novelty. Anti novelty effect, familiarity effect, whatever. Okay. It's it's like you know, these are, especially if you started with Gen One, right? I feel like your the first generation kind of imprints on you, like this is what to expect, and yes. subsequent games cannot deviate too far, right, from your frame frame of reference. And so I think maybe what it is is that we are old fogies. We are old fogies, but also that <laughs> um. Also that as you as you progress, um, you need to sink your teeth into that generation mm-hmm. until it becomes very familiar. 
Yes. Then the next one makes sense. Yes. Because it's the same way that like, you know, I Gen one and two very similar, I feel. It's really the oh, only yeah. difference mechanically is the addition of new Pokemon. Is it? I think actually? The, the only generation that, that truly felt different was uh Arceus. Yes, correct. But oh okay, in fairness, that also comes on the heels of Pogo. Yeah. And um, let's go Eevee, let's go Pikachu, right? Yes. I mean I, I would say like I would say okay, I you say Arceus, I say Arceus. But, uh, well fair. Uh, whatever. Linguistic variation. Yes. Um I mean, because Arceus is a... Okay, I, I would say Arceus is an evolution of um, Let's Go. Okay. And then Let's Go clearly has two parents, which mm-hmm. is Gen 1, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and and Pogo, Pokemon Go. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um. But because it has that Gen 1 parent, a lot of things about it are still very familiar for a, fami- for a long-time Pokemon player. I have not played that generation. I have not played uh, Let's Go, actually. I've, I've not played it either. I've watched it. Okay. Mm, right. right. Um, okay. To be fair, even say familiarity is, 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 is not really fair. Because it's a whole different... <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a Switch game, for goodness sake. Yeah. Right, like if you are playing on the, if you are playing on the Game Boy, um, the original Game Boy, and then, oh, you you can't play Yellow on the original Game Boy. You are playing Yellow on the GBC, and then you are given Yellow on the, uh, you are given Let's Go Pikachu or Let's Go Eevee on the Switch. You'll be like, mm. what? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like three dimensional, uh-huh. uh, movement. Double the screen you- size. Double Which screen size. <laughs> you can see Pokemon in the overworld. What the heck? Oh my god! Right. Um, right. And of course, concept. some. And of course, like I think I don't know which mechanics are are kept. Are abilities kept? I don't remember. So I mean, oh. later generations. Oh, ca- okay. Mm. You know they 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 keep some they they throw yeah. some. I think part of it is just because like people complain about like oh this generation had mechanic X and the subsequent generation didn't have it like like they're going backwards or whatever but I think part of it is just because the the mainline games across Mm -hmm. all their generations have such a huge library of game mechanics that anything that is not core to the central you know get gym badges battle catch them all Mm -hmm. anything Mm -hmm. that's not central to that I feel is up for grabs because you can't have all the mechanics in a single game, it's no, just absolutely overwhelming. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So I think it makes sense that they pick and choose. And it makes mm-hmm. sense also that they pick and choose which Pokemon go into the Pokedex. Because like, at one point, at one point you have catch them all is like 2,000 Pokemon, right? Like, uh, so I checked, 1,008. It's 1,008, but I mean, like, you know, if you keep going on, like, mm-hmm. eventually you reach a point where you, they have to make a decision somewhere that the next game it is not possible to catch them all yes right so yes. they made that choice i think was it sword and shield i think so yeah was right? around that generation either sun moon or sword shield yeah right yeah so they made that decision and then now it is there was you know much <coughs> weeping and gnashing of teeth mm-hmm. um but now well, it's it was kind of... annoying because i lost my favorite crobat so right that's true but <laughs> in the sense that you think of it as 
that generation just doesn't have that Pokemon. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But Other options are, are available. But which is why <laughs> I think the idea of a living dex um, that you keep in Pokemon Home came mm. about. Like, So your Pokemon from every generation, like eventually you can put that into Pokemon Home and if you want to still catch them all, you, you can. Right? I don't have a home account. I, need, I should go and get one. I, I haven't actually used it, but I mean, that's okay. the, that's a theory behind it, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think part of it is just, you know, all Folgies getting used to new mechanics. I'm mm-hmm. playing through uh, Diamond now. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. And the reason that I'm playing through Diamond, actually, is because I, 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 I finished one game of Emerald and that was just to play it on... Um, I as I said, original hardware, quote unquote, meaning yes. a DS Lite. Okay, on on first party hardware. How about that? <laughs> first party. Ah, that's right? a good term. Yes. Yeah. Um, Very but good. The reason I want to try it is because uh, I want to see how intergenerational transfers work, which is something I've never done. Right. 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 Like getting Pokemon from um, Gen three from your Gen three cartridge into Gen four. So mm. uh, I'm playing through Gen 4 for the second time and getting used to it, I guess. <laughs> Still not. Right. Diamond Pulse never really left a super strong impression, I feel, on me. Which is interesting because Diamond Pearl is the land of Arceus. That's true. Yeah, I mean, so right. a lot of the mythos, the, the key mythos was set in Diamond Pearl. Correct. Okay, to be fair, Platinum was, I think, more interesting. The storyline was more interesting. I agree. I mean, I not having played Diamond Pearl, but right. I, I played Platinum, right? And because right. it is the third game in that series, they had the yes. same pattern as with as with, um, as with, with Gold, Silver, Crystal, and then mm. Ruby, Sapphire, Emerald, where the third one is the one that ties the first two together. Yes. And so it's like, if you only played the first two, you are, it doesn't quite feel complete. Which mm, is, of course, mm. the goal, right? The goal is yeah. for you to buy the third game after you've bought yep. the first two. So you can play the stupid game through for the <laughs> third time. Um, yeah. It's very clever marketing. It's brilliant. Yeah. But I mean, to be fair, I think they also did a really good job, not just in, in marketing, but in, in terms of like, in-game, the in-game story yes. of making sure that it's not, you don't feel like you're just being sold and um, a carbon copy Yeah, money. You're exactly. not being fleeced. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Like, it's still an enjoyable experience the third time around, which is very impressive, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Um, and I think, I kind of like the mechanic that they, that they had um, with, starting with, starting with, um, Gen 3, which is that the the games play different. I don't know about Gen 4, actually. Diamond Pearl never actually played Diamond Pearl. But the fact that the fact that Ruby and Sapphire actually play differently because of the story, right? Where in Ruby, you get Burning Sun. Mm. And then <coughs> in... What, what is the mm. term, actually? The in-game term for... The sun is shining brightly or whatever it is. Oh, yes. The sun is shining brightly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, Correct. So it's a permanent uh, um, a, a permanent sunny day. Yes, uh, it's uh, a permanent sunny catch, day. Until uh, you catch Groudon. Um, Groudon. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then in Sapphire, it's a permanent uh, uh, rain dance. <laughs> rain dance, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's raining until you catch Kyogre. Yes. Right? And then in uh, Emerald, it's permanent mayhem <laughs> until you catch Rayquaza. <laughs> right? And also, yes. um, if I remember correctly, Ruby and Sapphire, I mean, because you catch them in different locations as well. Mm. Mm. Right? So yes. the 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 cave, quote-unquote cave, that you go through to catch those two Pokemon are also slightly different. Yes. And of course, uh, Emerald has the Sky Pillar. Which yes, is its own, yeah. its own... Okay, so the first time that you go to the Sky Pillar and you catch Rayquaza... No, you don't catch Rayquaza. You summon Rayquaza, right? Yes. Yes. You go to the Sky Pillar and you summon Rayquaza. It's very he, easy. <clears throat> yes. It's very easy. He just goes, he calms the Pokemon, he returns to the Sky Pillar. Right? And then if you want to catch Rayquaza, that's, that's when the hell begins. stupid puzzle. Yes. That is... Oh, you think that's bad? I mean, you played Platinum, right? The Captain Giratina was a pain in the ass. Uh, that was also a pain, yes. <laughs> uh, I have... I, I remember that. Uh, I am not looking forward to it when I get to it, ah. but yeah, ah. yeah. But anyway, I'm I'm slowly making my way through the Pokemon games. Part of it is because I I don't think I've mentioned it on on the podcast, but yes, this is a a little project that will take multi is a multi year project, many years to complete. But what I would like to do is I would like to stream every mainline Pokemon game, starting from mm-hmm. Red. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ending with whatever the current iteration is at the time that the project ends. Oh. Which will not be Violet, right? Like, it's going to be... No, it's going to be whatever comes after that. Yeah. Whatever comes after. Um, and I would like to do it on... Well, original hardware is not necessarily possible. Or f- first party. First party. First party mm. hardware is not necessarily possible. We will see. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are there are ways to do it. That oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, um, don't involve the use without of emulation, soft- obviously, with, without software emulation. Mm, yeah, right. Yeah. I, uh, there is that disclaimer of software emulation because technically the analog pocket is hardware emulation. Right, right, right. Uh, which which sounds dumb. Like, what is hardware emulation? In the sense that it is not the original hardware, but it can, it has the same result as original hardware. Right. Yeah. It's not exactly the same like circuits and the same chip design <laughs> right. as what's in your Game Boy Color or Game Boy Advance, but it can do the same job um, without without a software layer in between. So mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. So I've gone on a spree to acquire mm. the cartridges, which indeed, which I'm just not going to talk about how much money I have spent. No, no, no. I I no. I um kept track of it. <laughs> right, because I'm sure you I, I feel like that's the only financially responsible thing to do. I know I have a rough um, number. I say rough number. The reason is rough is because of um, currency exchanges. Ah, yes, of course, right, yeah. right, right. Um, well, I mean, but it is worth. I mean, I think the you know discussion we had yesterday about uh, the just how much the hardware has changed over time is actually quite. You Interesting know, re- and relevant. Yeah, because, you know, having obviously being old enough to have lived through all the generations from the Game Boy OG, right, mm. black and white screen, to a Switch, 
you know, holy shit. Which is a console, is essentially a home console that fits in. Your hand, yeah. Your hand, yes. This is more akin to like a Steam Deck. Yes. Yes. Right, I'm holding my Switch right now, sorry. I'm I'm playing Pokemon right now. Oh, great. Okay. (laughs) So, I mean... um, I mean, part part of this journey, of course, is acquiring some of these older consoles, right? Yes. So, uh, and in in a few cases, modifying them so that they can output HDMI, right? right? Um, or output video. So the the two kind of candidates for this, for me at least, were Game Boy Advance and um, the the new 3DS XL. Because mm. I have to, I have to think about it. Because I'm like new 3ds XL, like there are parts to that yeah. sentence, to that term. Um, and I mean, the reason for that is because you, if you think about it, you have you know Gen One is Game Boy, Game Boy Color. Gen Two is GB. Uh, no, Gen One is GB, GBC. Gen Two is GBC. Gen mm-hmm. Three is GBA. Yes. And all of those play on a Game Boy Advance. Yes. Then Gen 4 is DS. And then the DS generations, I just don't know them very well. Right? Well, I mean, but they broke continuity because of the... Right? Were they? Actually, I'm not sure. Oh, I don't know. Anyway. I, I, I just didn't play them. I mean, yeah. as we have established. Yeah. But, you know, DS and 3DS, that plays on the 3DS XL. And um, it's very hard now to find a good source for... Um, somebody who can install a capture card. Yes. Um, yes. For those okay. machines. I should point out, collecting portable Nintendo hardware is our generation's version of like collecting records or... Collecting vinyl. Yeah, Incidentally, vinyl, yeah. did you know that vinyl sales um, exceeded CD sales in the US last year? Seriously? Yeah. Well, okay, that makes sense. I mean, because CDs are... Who the hell wants CDs these days? Right? Yeah. But, yeah. huh, interesting. Let okay. me see if yeah, I can yeah. find that, that, tracks. that article. Um, but yeah, streaming now is 86% of the music market. Right, right. Uh, I mean, it's, it's amazing how quickly that happened as well. Yeah. Right, looking at technological, just, just change. Yep, so it says, um, vinyl albums outsold CDs last year for the first time since 1987. Wow. Okay. Yep. 41 million vinyl records um, were sold last year compared with 33 million CDs. So it's actually quite a... Quite a... Substantial... Big, um, difference, yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that the, the article that I'm putting in the show notes is from the Wall Street Journal, so it's behind a paywall, mm. uh, which means that you literally only get to see the headline and mm. then the... What's the thing that comes after the headline called? The, the the lead no the lead the graph yeah, maybe the, the, the graph. graph yeah okay but I mean that tells you really all you need to know maybe I will yes. find something okay the verge is not behind a paywall surely oh yeah the verge is good yeah. okay let's do They've the verge reporting. and to hell with the Wall Street Journal ha huh. okay um <clears throat> cool so the the thing about um retro collecting right mm. is i mean yeah i'm i'm it is in a sense our generation's version of it i think it's a very well okay i don't know if i would say it's a very uh normal thing because i feel like 
the idea of retro collections as a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say that maybe it's it's a very 20th century thing because like before that, most people just didn't have the disposable income to go about collecting. But that's I not disagree. true. That's no, not collecting true. Collecting has been around since time immemorial. Yeah. Come on. I, no, I think what I specifically mean is like a themed collection where you go out and acquire things, right? I'm a museum um, biologist. You're not going to pull that shit with me. That's not the point that I was getting at. <laughs> that's not the point I was getting at. But okay. like the idea of like a, a, a personal collection mm-hmm. of old items, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as a as a widespread hobby, which I I guess maybe mm. widespread is not the term because these are still this is still niche, right? Right, and it's still only restricted to people of means. Correct, correct. Which is again not any different from the way that it was in in the past. Right. Maybe, yes. Maybe the way to articulate it would be, um, or it would be an interesting uh study actually in, you know, the history of collecting. <laughs> um, that's literally what I just gave a lecture on two, three weeks ago. So, I mean, okay. the whole idea of museums having, you know, begun from these private collections, right? Collections mm-hmm. of curiosities, you know, rich right, people. Right, the curiosity, who, the cabinet of curiosities. The, yeah, the cabinets yeah. of curiosities, yes. You know, rich people who just wanted to put tchotchkes together into a collection to show off and then it became the uh, precursor to modern museums. Right, right. So yeah. I think, yeah, it, it, it is an interesting uh, dimension, but I don't think, I think this has been very well studied. It's been almost done to death, actually. It's a whole field of this museology. That's fair. That's yeah. fair, which is a field that I'm not familiar with. So okay, you are much more familiar with it. This is, this yeah. is very much my field, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, if you, um, besides the fact that, okay, I mean, there are definitely private museums that are essentially just themed collections of, you know, from an individual but then there are also entire um museums that are not really even themed <laughs> that are just okay this person collected stuff mm-hmm. and they are um they like this shit so here it yeah, is yeah and you know when they died they were prominent enough and rich enough to maybe leave leave it behind in a trust and now it's a museum so I've the been one to that, a few of those the one that I that comes to mind for me is um I actually don't know how to pronounce his name, but John Saws. Okay, where is this? Um, this is in London. Uh, John oh. Saws. Am I imagining things? It doesn't ring a bell to me. Okay, now I just then no then that is not the right name because I just typed. Are in you John thinking Saws. of the Horniman Museum? I've clearly picked up the wrong name because John Saws is a film director. Right. Um, let me... Let me go hunt for it. I think okay. I roughly know where it is in London. Although, like, if I just look at a map of London, is it going to be like, huh, museums in London? Oh, wow. <laughs> Which one of these? Take your pick of the litter, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <coughs> um, but, I mean, leaving us, like, John Sohn. John Sloan. John Sloan is John, British John, Museum. John John Sloan, not John Sloan. Sloan. Oh, okay. Uh, he was an English architect. Right. And uh, let me put that in the... Let me put that So Hans Sloan the, is British Museum, not John. Right. But Hans is just the German form of John. Mm, mm. Well, Johann, yeah. Hans. Mm. 
Yeah. Uh, okay. So, yeah, he, he was an architect. He collected things. His house is now a museum. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's, it's very eclectic. It's, it's maybe oh, yeah. It's, I mean, as it's meant to be, right? Yeah. But I think, um, I mean, going to a more different... Going on a different tag, maybe, is... Um, I'm thinking about the the Prado Museum. Okay. Right, which is obviously, you know, big name museum that... National collection, right, in Spain, is it? Which is kind of where I'm getting to. It is a kind of national collection. Um, yeah, actually, I don't know what its current organizational structure is. Like, is it constituted as a... Like, is it part of the government of Spain? I, I don't know if if that's the case, but um, definitely it's public. I'm pretty sure it, right, it's a, right. like a public museum. Um, but the origins of it, right, they originated as the personal collections of the Spanish monarchs. Yes. Which means that the quality of it, like if you think about kind of like the big name art <coughs> museums, right? It's kind of, you go to New York, you have the Met. Mm-hmm. You go to Paris, you have the Louvre. Mm-hmm. You go to Madrid, you have the Prado. But the difference is kind of in the remit of the museum um, because of how they, they started, right? Like the, I don't know about the Louvre actually, but um, like the Met Museum, for example, like their task is essentially just collect everything. <laughs> um, right. Okay, I mean, well, let's be fair though. I mean, contrasting the American with the European museums is, is, is interesting because obviously one has a lot more baggage of colonialism. Yes, of right? course. And, and you know, the, therefore the museums as being part of the colonial project. So m- maybe the, the Met, because it is not specifically an art museum, mm-hmm. uh, maybe the better comparison would be something like British Museum, obviously. Or um, what's the one in... Uh, the British Museum also still has all these entanglements of colonialism that makes it... I think the, the, there is a lot of nuance no, to be... What what I meant is in what like types of things they actually collect. Because, right, okay. Because Prado is specifically an art museum. Right, right. It right, doesn't, right. It doesn't house, um, you know, it uh, doesn't house archives, doesn't house, as far as I'm aware, doesn't house like uh, artifacts from the Americas, things like that. Um, so okay, no, that that means you're talking about the 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 geographical scope of the collection, which I guess makes sense. Yeah. But but then again, there are few museums in the world whose remit is everything in the world is ours or or right. fits in our collection. Okay. Right. Then- Most museums. Oh well. Okay. The discourse that we're having about this in museum world, which is a, a thing that we say, right, uh-huh. is that <clears throat> uh, we're looking at the difference between, in a sense, large and small collections. Or right. global versus regional collections. Right. That wouldn't... Okay, I, I think the global versus regional regional discussion, I, that's uh, relevant here. Although mm-hmm. I think it is... It, the Prado is obviously not a small effect. collection. The, the Prado is not a what collection? Obviously not a small collection. It's right. not a small collection. No. But I think I think the, the regional versus global thing is more... In this case, is a side effect as opposed to the intention. Now, why mm. I say that is maybe, okay, so maybe in that case, the better comparison is not Prado and Met, not a good comparison here, right? Maybe the comparison here is Met and British Museum, okay, for as an example, but for art museums, maybe you're looking at Prado against the Louvre, 
mm -hmm. right? Because they are both art museums, with the Louvre having some other stuff. Um, and then, or maybe something like um, the... What is that main art museum in London? I am blanking out. The V&A? Not the V&A. Because the V&A actually has a lot of um, baggage. Yes. As oh, well. yeah. I'm oh, thinking yes. of the one oh, oh. in thinking of the one in Trafalgar Square. Square National Gallery. The National Gallery, yes. Right. Um, yeah. So maybe that's a better comparison. Because but again, national. Well, National Gallery has a nationalist or a national. There is uh -huh, a nationalism uh -huh. element to it as well. So I yeah. mean, I I I see where we're, I see where you're going with this, but there is you know all museums have so much, especially European museums, <clears throat> have so much bloody baggage attached to them. Right. That it becomes very difficult to discuss them in broad terms sometimes. Right. Because their idiosyncrasies are just so okay. ridiculous. Hang on for a second, because this is, where uh -huh. this is where I'm going with the Prado, which is that the Prado is, it originated with the collection of the Spanish monarchs, right? Yes. And the thing is, that the Spanish monarchs, they have very specific tastes. Oh, yes. Right? Which you can still see in the Prado Museum to this day, Right. Mm -hmm. which makes, in my opinion at least, makes it interesting uh, compared to the more comprehensive museums because the curators of the Prado, the sense that I get at least, is that they are still very um, directed. Cognizant? Mm. Yeah, I think they're cognizant. They're very directed mm. and like, okay, this originated as a personal collection. It's a very mm -hmm. big personal collection put together by one of the most powerful families of its time, right? But they, they kind of... And it obviously has national and international importance, but they are still it's still kind of framed around we are showcasing a very large personal collection that began uh, in the Renaissance. And right. so the experience of, to me, right, the experience of going through the Prado is... I feel much more coherent compared to going through one of the other, you know, maybe a peer museum. I, I don't know if I'll even call the Louvre a peer museum. The the, the Louvre is arguably peerless. <laughs> it's Actually, humongous. I don't really... I mean, I would dig deeper into the history of the Louvre. Is the Louvre also an extension of a, a monarchical or, or you know, a royal collection Almost as well? certainly. But right, yeah. with France and royal collections, they have a very particular history. <laughs> I mean, you know, French Revolution and all that stuff as well. But yeah. I would think maybe then the Netherlands or the Dutch, uh, the Danish collections might be an interesting uh, analog that to that. An, yes, that could be an interesting comparison, actually. Although, again, because the, the Dutch were such major colonial assholes, right, you would also have that, that dimension of, you know, the, the, the VOC's collections being part of that, that right. equation as well. But I think, again, you would you'd split that because if you're talking about Dutch art mm. against Dutch collections, mm. the Dutch art museums, as far as I've seen, don't have many colonial collections. That true is yeah the separate... Rijksmuseum, the Marit Suisse. Yeah, they, they do have a, a Tropen Museum, which is a I, museum which of I've the tropics. In. Uh, right, well, okay. I stayed in the branch in Leiden. Uh, I, I right. literally lived in a room behind the museum. Right. Yeah, Which so, belongs to the museum. Right. I haven't I haven't been to the Tropa Museum, so I can't comment on it. Uh, when um, I was there, I think the Tropa Museum may have been closed. Or at least I couldn't find the time to go to the Tropa... The, the actual Tropa Museum. I stayed in the... Um, is it... 
what's it called? I can't remember what it's called, but it's uh, it's the museum that's in Leiden. It's a cultural museum as well. And then they have a prison house or an old prison house at the back of the of the the compound and they've turned it into like guest residences for visiting academics and stuff like that. Right, right. Which was quite fun, lah. Yeah. Um very yeah, very um I mean very colonial oriented, lah. So they large Indonesian collection, large um Surinamese African collection as well. It was interesting to see uh, that dimension and how they negotiated with the colonial baggage. Yeah. Yeah. There we should dig that, the, yeah. that museum in Berlin that I cannot remember the name of um, that has a crap ton of um, archaeological artifacts. Oh, wait. The name just slips. Ah, crap. Sorry, I'm not super off with German museums. I only know their natural history museums. Fairly well, like Sinkenberg um, and the uh, Museum for Naturkunde. I mean, Berlin has a museum island, which right, yes. I don't have the Pergamon, yes, like a, the Pergamon Museum. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, let's see, the Bodo Museum. Yeah. So the Pergamon Museum is the one that has the. Pergamon Altar. Right. Where, okay, where is the bust of Nefertiti located? Oh. Right. I would I mean I would have thought the British Museum, but <laughs> uh, Oh, that's in the Neues Museum. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, but basically that's uh let me put all of that into the, the show into notes. the show notes. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I I have very mixed feelings about Museum Insel because Museum Island in um oh, in, right. in I would like to go actually in Berlin have a look. because um in I mean it's it it's an island in the middle of Berlin that's just full of museums right um, but is it on the Rhine or something it's a Berlin is not on the no, Rhine Berlin is not on the Rhine what is the river that runs through Berlin. Uh, I'm 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 <laughs> having a geographical crisis. It's the 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 river spray. Ah, spray. Okay, right, 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 yeah. right. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so the mm. the museums there, I'm I haven't actually spent a lot of time there. Part of it is because I think when I visited, a bunch of them were closed for renovation. Um, ah, yeah. Secondly. They have this whole thing where, you know, you can buy a ticket that covers the five major museums of the yes. museum island for like a day, but you will never finish them in a day. No. So because, I've seen I mean, a, look. Yeah. Right. Okay. I've, I have found actually, this is a this is a segue to just museums in general. Mm-hmm. I have found that my museum visiting habits, I used to be able to spend four bloody hours in a single museum, mm. but I think my patience is now starting to run a bit thin. Same. Same. Like when I was in college, and I, I mean, I visited museums like, I mean, like it was a thing. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe college okay, is just... there are a few things. That time. Number one, it's, I think we're aging. Yes. So, you know, yeah. But number two, it's also because a lot of museums share and recycle themes a lot. That's true. So once you've been to enough museums, you start to see the, you know, the themes, you're like, okay, I get it. 
I don't have to literally read every word to yep. familiarize myself with that. Yeah. You know, the 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 minutiae. Yeah. Agreed. Right? And yeah. Yeah. And so that's that's what sort of more or less informs my museum going now. Now I find myself spending less and less time in galleries and then less and less time reading every single bit of text. Right. I focus a lot more on looking at the collection holistically and the gallery mm. holistically and looking at, you know, theming and all that kind of stuff, which which is, is, you know, really important, right? Because that's really where all the interpretation comes in. That's true. That's true. And I mean, I have to admit that on my part, now when I go to museums, I have a little bit of impatience. Like the text doesn't seem as exciting as it used to be. Mm -hmm. um, there's one part of that. I think, to be fair, I have to point out that the Prado's... Um, what exactly is the text called? There is a term for it, I'm sure, which I'm sure you know. If there is a term for it, I don't um, the recall. accompanying um, write up, the, whatever. Okay. Um, okay. Basically, the the text that they put next to the pictures, right in the Prado. Yes. Um, yes. But not just not in the, the provenance, Prado. but the not the provenance, the stuff after right. the provenance. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I get it, but I yeah. But I think this is true of all the museums that I visited in Madrid, um, not just the Prado. So the Reina Sofia. Um, mm -hmm. Well, those two mainly that I, I can think of. I also so went to the Thyssen Bornemisza, which is the third major art museum in Madrid. But mm -hmm. it is, um, so interestingly, because the Prado is like, it's kind of like 1400s to 1800s right. ish. The Reina Sofia more or less picks up where that leaves off time wise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the Reina Sofia is not arranged chronologically, which is another topic that maybe we can get into if we have time, oh, blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, lots of museums, you know, there is lots of variation in terms of how they want to arrange right. material. I mean, the well, again, at, at risk of digressing, right, the one museum that I found really, really interesting, uh, well, that I've been to at least, you know, having been to many natural history museums, right, the classical natural history museum organisation is we do it by taxonomy. That's right? what, so, yeah, I guessed. Birds in one gallery, yeah. mammals in one gallery, you know, all that stuff which makes sense, right? But what the Naturalist Museum in Leiden did was uh -huh. completely different. Okay. Right. What they had was all of life, all of diversity, one gallery. Okay. You walk through like a thousand mounted specimens on display, all of life, you learn about taxonomy right. there. Right, right. Second gallery is the historical geography of the Netherlands, so Doggerland and, you know, flooding and all right, that kind right. of stuff. Right. But what really blew me away was upstairs the last gallery that you visit or if, if you start you know bottom to top it's just themed on death and you know decomposition so it's it's completely different from all the other museums in that it it really doesn't take a taxonomic approach it takes a thematic approach towards natural history which i find to be well very refreshing and also really really interesting right yeah that's interesting because, uh, I mean, the, the Reina Sofia also does a thematic approach. Um, essentially, it's organized around ideas and not around right. um, time, which makes sense, I guess, for a, especially for a modern, for a museum where the art picks up in the late 1800s. Right, um, right. Because, you know, at that point, it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense to organize chronologically. There is, the more modern you get, I guess, there is the more artifacts you have and so <laughs> you're just going to arrange in a strict chronology unless there is a kind of um, 
you know, response element to it. Well, like, I mean, if you look at the National Museum in Singapore, I don't uh-huh. know if you've been recently. Not recently. Okay. Or even if you've been like post-2008. I don't know when the last time I uh, went was. Okay. Well, so the, the thing is that it's easier to, to arrange artifacts in chronology okay. the further back in time you go. Right. right? And yes. of course, in, in a museum with very clear nationalist uh, 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 responsibilities, right? it's got a very clear nationalist remit, right? Um, it, it really can't afford to take a chronological approach with relatively contemporary history. So 19, you know, uh, 1965 onwards, right. Right? it really can't afford to do that. Yeah. So if you look at the National Museum, it basically just blends uh, the post-independence years more or less together, which is right. very interesting. It just compresses it all into one, you know, into themes more or less. It's, you know, industrialization and nationalism and all that stuff. Right, right. Um, and it does not take a chronology. It, it loses the chronology from then on, which, which you know, is, is again very interesting and it probably will vary depending on uh, you know the the museum's responsibility, the remit, uh, who the curator is, obviously. Right. Um, you know their their museological styles, Be- the postmodern. I think the was... idea of the nationalist story is that we <laughs> civilization players joke about the end of history because that's yes. that's that's what. Um, oh, well, firstly, <laughs> oh yeah, I mean that's where that's where it comes from. Yes. But I think, firstly, in Civ Four, when you finish the game, like the pop the pop-up that appears um, says something about the end of history. So there is a little <laughs> bit of that, right? I mean, part of it is, Someone's of course, the, <laughs> the, difficulty of, um, the difficulty of a game like Civ, of course, is that you, are, you start from the ancient era, right? And you mm-hmm. at least come up to the present era. But then what happens next? You are guessing. And yes. so it's very natural for the game designers to have a very... Um, it's very rich um, up to the present era. And then after that is like question mark, <laughs> right? Like there's, you know, the you, Civ Six, I feel has been very good at filling in that detail. Um, you still get very rich gameplay after you pass the point that we are currently in real life. You know, you have things right. like seasteads, like maybe people will live on the water, like you'll have fully functioning society. Um, that can make use of water. I mean, I'm not saying that's a good idea. I'm just saying that you can see <laughs> where that Kevin comes Costner from. Film, but okay. Right. I mean, <laughs> you, you can see where that comes from, both from yes. a gameplay and from a, from a real life perspective, right? You can, um, they have like floating um, wind farms, which sure, pretty sure is... It's, it's real. Is real, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the forms of government, I think they are like, Digital democracy, synthetic technocracy, and I can't remember what the last one is. Oh, okay. And you okay. can kind so of see where the idea. Clearly, someone yeah. they hired a policy consultant, lah. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure they did, yeah. <laughs> um, or I'm sure that you know they have in-house people whose job it is literally just to think of these things because that yes. is what they do. This, yes. you know, they are the people who who make the Civ game. Um, but I mean, compared to Civ Four, where like once you hit the present-ish moment. What happens is that global warming hits and then like you just lose farmland and then you can't really play anymore, <laughs> which is miserable. Ah, but, ca- um, catas- catastrophist ideology, yeah. I see. But then the thing is, it's this idea that for, uh, for 
a museum like the national, you know, that tells the, the national history of Singapore. It's this idea that the end, quote unquote, end of history was 1965. And everything mm. after that is happiness, <laughs> right? Well, right. The apotheosis, well, apo- the, 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 the culmination of all of historical efforts, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It ends in, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, I mean, obviously all of these things are discussed in, in museum studies and museological literature. I mean, I'm teaching a whole bloody course about narrative and curation now. So, yeah. Yeah. It, and- it, it tracks. But at the same time, obviously, there are million and four ways of going about this. Like, and actually, so this... Yeah. Sorry, sorry to cut you off here, but actually, I actually think this is very interesting because when I first went to the US um, to do undergrad, that was actually a very striking difference that I found between American students and my own experience growing up, mm. you know, studying in Singapore, is that is that sense of the end of history, right? Like in for me as a Singaporean student, right, it kind of always felt like is presented as Singaporean history is a done deal, <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. we are here now. And this is the way we shall continue. Yes. Right? Akong shall prevail. <laughs> okay. Did not say that. But <clears throat> but it's this idea that like, you know, this is a society we live in and you must learn to function in it. Mm. Um, what was very striking to me about studying around American students was the sense that they... I don't know how to describe it other than maybe like, you know, they, they have the sense that they are standing in a stream of history. Oh God, that's right. Hamilton, isn't it? Um, has its eyes on you. <laughs> I I don't know necessarily that I would go that far, but okay. you know, there there is a much more, there is a much greater awareness of mm. how the past historical context leads into the present, and therefore how the present will lead into the future. And right, it's right, right. it's it's not us. It's not. There is no expectation that they are in a steady state, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Which I feel like growing up in Singapore is like this is the gift that yeah. all the generations <laughs> yeah. have passed down onto you, and you shall live in this world, right? This is your inheritance. Don't mess around with it. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. That is exactly how you feel after like Singaporean social history or social studies. Before. Yeah, That's exactly. Um, but I never, you know, talking to like American classmates, like you get the sense that they actually feel like um, there is an agency over mm. the course of their society, which um, is not necessarily something that I can pinpoint. I, can, I, I can't, like, you know, tell you about a particular conversation that made me realize this. It's just, like, over time, you're like, huh, that's interesting. You know, it kind of begins with like, that's interesting. You you think that you can actually mm-hmm. like change society. Ha. Huh. And then, <laughs> right. Uh, and I've also just realized that we are coming up with the hour, which is yes. ridiculous. We, I mean, we, we, again, like last week, we started with Pokemon and we pivoted something completely different. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of have we to wrap up. We can pick up the museum conversation later. I we think can it's always, interesting. We can always pick up the museum conversation. Because I, never I think it's finished an interesting threat. I never finished what I wanted to say about the Prado, which oh, is okay, fair. which is um, the thing about I think the the part about the collection being coherent I've already mentioned, but the thing about mm-hmm. the 
thing that comes after the provenance, right? The description that you see next to the pictures mm-hmm. in the Prado. One thing that they do very well that I don't see a lot of other museums do as well, the Prado curators are very good at articulating why this picture is important and what you should look out for. Okay, so this is actually uh, a holdover from, I think, older museum practice. Because the modern museum, I mean, we talked. I haven't talked. We haven't talked about it, but you know, the the sort of postmodern style of doing museum making is to try to minimize the amount of text. Interesting. Uh, and it's to to facilitate, therefore, the interpretive process that an audience, a museum goer, experiences. Right. Right. And this is you know because, okay, there are there are layers, right? On the one hand, you will have the arrangement of the or the inclusion of the artifact within the context of other artifacts, presents one narrative. Mm-hmm. But the artifact in and of itself can also lend itself to multiple interpretations. And so that right. is, I think, what the modern uh, um, museum uh, approach or museum-making approach is right. Right, when it comes to curation. Right. I, I would be interested to know if... Um, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm sure that if you dig hard enough, like there will be you know, discussions from the curators about mm-hmm. why they have a particular approach. I would say maybe in, in this particular case, the Prado has a big baggage of history, not baggage in the colonial sense, just baggage in the, in the this is how we've always done it sense, mm. right? So maybe they're reluctant to move away from that. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, there are I, institutional I, cultures at play yeah. as well. And yeah. Yeah, but I would have to say that for me as a viewer, especially the fact that when I encountered the Prado, like I was relatively new to museum going, relatively new Mm. to art history and understanding art in general, Mm -hmm. right? And like having those things, having those pointers, it makes it much more approachable, which is I think another common um, um, what's the gripe, yeah, about Mm. uh, art museums in particular, like Mm -hmm. uh, I might look at pretty pictures. This was actually the, the, the big feedback that uh, my students gave me. So, I mean, I wasn't teaching that, that, that uh, lecture, but when we, I brought the, when we brought them to the, um, the University Art Museum, so this is the National University of Singapore's in-house art museum, which is technically one of the, the, one of the oldest museums in Singapore because, you know, this was when uh, the, the, the Lee Kong Chien Natural History Museum Raffles Museum and the um, University Art Museum are the two oldest museums in Singapore, right? Um, and because it's a university art museum, the interpretive signage is less in your face. Yeah. And so a lot of students found it very confusing. They had no idea what they had to, what they were supposed to be looking at, what what they were supposed to be, uh, you know, pulling from 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 the art pieces. I mean, obviously there is one you know one aspect is that they are naive to this, mm, right? Yeah. Yep. Because they clearly you know, especially in Singapore, we don't have a good uh, prior background training in in art history, art history or visual culture or yeah. visual interpretation, yep. right? But on the other hand, because it's an, a university museum, the presentation is also a bit more avant garde, <laughs> right? Yep. Because the audience is not your layperson. Yep. The audience is people in the university, other academics. Yep. Right. And so the students complained that they literally had no idea what they were supposed to be seeing. So we brought them to this uh, gallery where it was um, looking. It was it was based off of the speeches of uh, Rajaratnam. Okay. Right, because uh, and this is actually a topic that you uh, previously were very interested in as well. It's what happens 
what happened on the 10th of August, 1965. Mm, yes. Right. But yeah. not strictly 10th of August, but the, the months leading up to and right after that. Yeah. Right. What is our impression of nationalism, Singaporeanness? Right. right. Uh, 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 leading up to and immediately after separation. Right, yep. Right. And and Rajaratnam, you know, being the, the, the writer and poet that he was, he thought about this at great length and he actually had a series of radio speeches about this. Right. Okay. Um, sort of, you know, trying to define what the Singaporean identity was. So the whole idea was to... And on all the paintings that we had on display in that gallery were about um, the ways in which... Uh, communities in Singapore were depicted in artwork. So pictures of hmm. like uh, 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 women working, lots of images of women working, which, you know, the, if you if you saw it and you, you, you know, you are trained in visual culture, straight away you will pick it up. Yes. You will pick up. Yes. Right. Okay. There is number one, this focus on agrarian slash industrial production. Number yep. two, it's a lot of it is women. Yes. Right? And then you turn to the provenance and you realize it's a lot of Chinese men. No shit, uh, right? Who are making yeah. these art, okay. uh, these art pieces, and so it, 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 you know, that was what we was we wanted them to, to, to think about. But clearly, right, they lacked that familiarity with the, mm. with this process of yep. visual interpretation, yep. and so a lot of them, you know, we had to spell it out very explicitly for the students before they sort of, kind of maybe got it, right. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this is like. Uh... We'll pick this up. Yeah, in I two have like time. I, I would like to keep talking, but yeah, no, we don't have time. So yeah, we'll pick this up in in two months. Um, we will not have an April episode. Although by the I time this yeah, by the time this episode goes out, maybe it'll be April. <laughs> um, uh, I will not have a reliable Wi-Fi connection in Thailand. I will only have my data line for my phone. So mm. uh, best not to. I'm sure when we come back in uh, May-ish. May. Oh my god, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure when we get back, we will hear a lot about... Thailand. DNA extraction. Well, Thailand. I'll be I'll oh, be okay. catching birds in Thailand for a whole month, so that's going right. to be fun. Okay, cool. Cool. Anyway, this is um, episode number 36 of Monkey hey. Mind. So you can find the show notes at monkeymind.xyz slash 036... If I don't forget to renew the domain name. <laughs> All right. Oh my God, my website and domain name is where I need to go and check. Okay, cool. Um, yes. That's all. And we will see you sometime in May. Yes. Goodbye. Bye-bye.